In a world where we experience economic turmoil, grief, poverty, and crime, we are not consumed by the flames, but rather we use those flames to light our path toward a brighter future. Through our faith, we learn to receive the strength and resilience we need to survive and thrive in the midst of life's greatest challenges. So let us be like the fire that burns hot and bright, never letting the world's darkness extinguish our inner flame. Let us draw upon the unshakable resilience that comes from Jesus alone and emerge from the trials of life stronger and more resilient than ever before. Last weekend, I was with my mom in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, in the Smoky Mountains. Had never been to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. An interesting little town. I mean, and it is a small little town. The main downtown strip is less than a mile long, and year-round population there of about 4,000 people that live there year-round. However, last year they welcomed somewhere between 13 and 14 million visitors, tourists, partly because of the Smoky Mountains, and so they they you know, cater a lot to tourists. And, and as I was thinking about this town that I experienced, I was trying, how would I explain Gatlinburg? And I think if, if Reno, the Linden Fair and Walmart had a baby, <laughs> it, it would be Gatlinburg. And it was quite an experience. And so we were there and, and on Saturday afternoon, my mom and I were walking around downtown and, and we got to the point where she wanted to take a break. So we found a Starbucks and got some beverages and sat down on a bench just to watch people. This is us on the, on the street of Gatlinburg. That's uh, what they call the Gatlinburg Space Needle behind us. But we were sitting there watching people and it was tremendously entertaining. Uh, people of all stripes. And, and, and so we were sitting there on this bench and there was a bench right next to our bench. I mean, butted up next to it. And a gentleman came and sat there. And I refer to him as a gentleman. I think he'd probably prefer to be called a good old boy. Um, but he embarked on, on uh, conversation with us, perfect strangers on the street of Gatlinburg. He's from West Virginia and he began to talk to us about West Virginia as I guess folks from West Virginia are wont to do. And so he began to tell us about West Virginia and where he grew up and how Gatlinburg reminded him of the county he grew up in, except that the hollers there in Gatlinburg are a little wider than the hollers in the county that he grew up in. And then he went on to explain that a holler is actually a hollow, but you have to call it a holler. And, and then he went on and told us with great enthusiasm and excitement that the county he grew up in is the birthplace, the origination of the word redneck. And I'm thinking, find a different claim to fame. I mean, if that's what you're most excited about. And, and, and then he explained, no, 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 redneck was actually, it was the miners that were being treated poorly and there was this big revolt and they all wore red bang, uh, bandanas around their necks and thus we get redneck. And on and on he went, this perfect stranger telling us all the truths about West Virginia. And when he left after what seemed to be, well, it actually was an eternity, he finally left and I thought, I have wisdom from West Virginia that is of no purpose or use to me unless I'm ever on Jeopardy and the category is words that originated in West Virginia. Other than that, all the wisdom I got from him is useless. Except I can tell you. Now we're in the series Resilient with wisdom from Babylon, not West Virginia. And my prayer is that the wisdom we're gaining from Babylon will not be like the wisdom I gained from West Virginia. That it'll be wisdom that we can apply to our lives, that we can use, that's practical, that will allow us to go through life and to be resilient. The wisdom from Babylon were from the exiles, those who were taken from Judah into Babylon and were exiled, and some of them, four in particular that we've been looking at, were extremely resilient in this event and in this season. 
because it would go on for 70 years, and yet some of them were incredibly resilient in those 70 years. And as I've said through the series, that while they were in exile, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah wrote them a letter from the Lord. And in this letter to the exiles, God reveals to them that they're gonna be there for a while, that they're gonna be there for 70 years. And while they're there for 70 years, they ought to settle in. They ought to build houses for themselves. They ought to plant gardens for themselves. They ought to get married. They ought to have children. Their children ought to get married and have children because they're going to be there for a while. And as he begins to explain this season that they're going to be experiencing, he follows it up with these words in Jeremiah 29, 7. Also, he writes, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And what he says is, while you're there, because I took you there, while you're there, I don't want you to just kind of cloister yourself away. I want you to pursue peace in the area that I've given you, the prosperity of the surrounding people. I want you to pray for them. I want you to be good citizens in Babylon. I want you to be good neighbors in Babylon. What he's in essence saying is, be a blessing in Babylon, that I have taken you there for a purpose. Part of the purpose was to get Judah and Israel back in a right relationship with God. They had broken their covenant. That was part of it. But there was a secondary reason as well. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, that God was up to something in Babylon, that he wanted something even for Babylon as well. And that was part of his plan. And when I was thinking about this whole thing of God carrying them into exile, and then he had a purpose for them, I was thinking about that dialogue or the conversation that Paul had with with all of the deep thinkers of Athens when he's at the Areopagus and they're kind of just waxing philosophical about all these things of life. And Paul says to them in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, from one man, he made every nation of man that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live that God in his sovereignty chooses the times and the places where people should be. And that's what Jeremiah was saying to the exiles. God carried you here and he has a set purpose for you here. That's what Paul was saying to the Athenians there. And if that is true, couldn't we then conclude that our sovereign God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he has that for us as well. That he has chosen the set time and the set place for us to be. And that he would want for us the same thing that he would say to the exiles. I have put you in this place. I've put you in this community. I've put you with these people. i put you in this area so that you would seek the peace of that area. You would help to prosper that area. You would pray for that area. And I believe God has set us in certain places for that as well. Now, over the last three summers here at Cornwall, we've done a thing in the summer, and it's not a program. I think the best way I would explain it is a reminder, an intentional reminder of how we are to be in our world. And what we reference it as is neighbor to neighbor. And it's to be exactly what God had said to the exiles. The community that you're in, whether it's your neighborhood or your work community or your friends, your sphere of influence, that you would be there and you would be seeking peace there and you would seek prosperity and you would pray for that group. That you would be a blessing in your Babylon. You'd be a blessing in Blaine. You'd be a blessing in Bellingham. You'd be a blessing in Burlington. That you'd be a blessing where God has placed you. 
And so again, this, this summer, we just want to remind ourselves that we're called to be good neighbors and in so doing, just to intentionally connect with those that are in our sphere of influence, to, to hear their story, just to learn from them, to love them with, with no heavy-handed ulterior motive, just to be connected as good neighbors, that they would experience peace and prosperity, that we pray for them, that there would be an impact that takes place that way. And I want to encourage you to do that. And, and if you're like, boy, this is new to me, we have some resources available to you if you would like to, how to pray for your neighbors, some ways that you could connect, some, just some brainstorming ideas. Uh, we, we've got an opportunity for you to just like put a pin in where your neighborhood is and to pray for your neighborhood. Encourage you to be a part of that because the desire is that we would connect with others and be able to have an impact. Now, Daniel, I believe, took this letter that Jeremiah had sent, probably when he was a very young boy, very, very seriously. And his entire life, he spent bringing peace in what way he could to Babylon, helping Babylon to prosper and praying, as we'll see in a minute, for Babylon. And as it said, God says, as Babylon prospers, so will you. And that happened in Daniel's life. In Daniel chapter six, verse three, we read these words. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. If you're familiar with Old Testament stories, it's almost like the Joseph story is repeating itself. That here's this guy in a situation where he doesn't want to be, and yet he remains faithful. And because of his faithfulness, God elevates him to a high place. Now, keep in mind, Daniel has served under three different administrations. The majority of this series, for five or six weeks, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Last week, Ryan talked about, about Belshazzar was the king. And this week, as we get into the next chapter, we see that Darius is the king. So three different administrations. And Daniel has served all three of these faithfully for many, many years. And where we land today is in Daniel chapter six. So if you have your Bible, you wanna follow along, you can. Now, let me remind you, this series is not a study of the book of Daniel. It's a study of the lessons from Babylon that we can get most of them out of the book of Daniel. So we're not gonna be going verse by verse through Daniel. But in Daniel chapter six, we find, I would say, without a doubt, the most well-known, most familiar, most famous event that ever happened in the 70 year exile period. This is the one we think of, this is the one we know about. In fact, I would go even further to say what we're gonna find in Daniel chapter six, that story would probably rank in the five most familiar stories of the entire Old Testament. I mean, even people that don't go to church, weren't raised in church, didn't go to vacation Bible school or Sunday school, didn't have the Awanas, didn't have the Bible storybook in their kids, never read the Bible. If you ask them, tell me a Bible story. Man on the street, tell me a Bible story. What, what story do you know of the Bible? I think probably the top five would be this. Well, there would be the uh, Noah in the ark and his wife, Jonah of ark. And then there would be uh, Jonah and the whale, even though it wasn't a whale, it said it was a big fish. And then I think there would be Moses in the parting of the Red Sea. I think that would, I think that would be in there. David and Goliath, because that's used throughout in, in all kinds of different, even sporting events. It's a David versus Goliath. And then this story, I think these would be the top five. This story would make it into the top five. It's so familiar, in fact, 
When the writer of Hebrews is talking about great men and women of the faith throughout scripture, he starts talking about some specifics and he gives all the details of these specific people. And then he starts finding that he's running out of time. He's going long, kind of like a preacher that I know. And so he begins to condense things and he says, I don't have time to go through all these. And then at the end, he doesn't even mention names. He just throws some things out there and you know who he's talking about because this story is so familiar. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33, it says, those who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. Now, there are two of those lines in there. He doesn't mention names. He doesn't mention where in the Bible. He doesn't mention anything, but we know who he's talking about. When it talks about quenching the fury of the flames, we know, and we talked about this two weeks ago. You know, just three MCs and they're on the go. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know that he's talking about that. And then this other phrase, who shut the mouths of lions. He doesn't have to mention who this is. We know who it is. This is way before the Tiger King. Joe Exotic never even existed yet. This is long before Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, and his lions. This is before Siegfried and Roy, and I hope it's not too soon for them. This is even before Gunther Williams. Does anyone in this room know who Gunther Williams is? No? Yes, okay, last service, not one. When I was growing up, every year we would go to the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus in the Memorial Coliseum in Portland, and Gunther Williams was the lion tamer. And that flowing blonde hair and that open shirt with the chest hair and the whip, I wanted to be Gunther Williams. I got none of it. Not the hair, not the chest, not the whip. But he was the lion tamer. Before all of those, we have Daniel in the lion's den. Very, very familiar, familiar story. So let me ask you this. How many of you growing up went to a church where you heard Daniel in the lion's den story told on a board that had felt on it and little flannel pieces? How many of you saw that on the flannel board? Okay, now we're talking. See, I wanted to do that today, but I couldn't find a flannel board anywhere. Churches have lost their way. Children's ministries have gone digital. We need the flannel board the way God ordained stories to be told. But regardless, we've heard this. Now, with this familiar story, I will say this. Today, we won't even get into the lion's den. So if you're like, oh, I was hoping. Daniel 6, you can read it for yourself. If I get boring or long, read it. That way at least you get the word of God today. But I want to look at one verse. We're going to land on, we're going to get a few more, but I want to land on one verse, one verse that will show us how Daniel could be resilient, not just in this event, not just in this circumstance with the lion's den, but through the years there in Babylon. How he had remained resilient year, decade after decade after decade. Now, so many times with stories like Daniel's and Lion's Den, we, we become so familiar with them that, that we can kind of, you know, sand off the rough edges and make it a cute, sentimental story. It's sweet. We sugarcoat it. In fact, I found a picture on the internet that does this very thing. I heard a little bit of an oh and a little bit of a uh. I would side on the, uh, give me a sledgehammer. We'll take care of that precious moment. Now, now in, in all, all due respect, for those of you who still have the, the collection. Okay. We, 
make this this cutesy little precious moment where the lion with the big weepy eyes and little Danny just got out of his jammies and he's playing with the tabby cat and the lion's even got a little bit of a smile. Yeah, come on. We forget the reality of this story. In fact, some of us in our mind, the story that we were told was Daniel was this young man and thrown to the lions. Do you realize that in Daniel chapter 6, the vast majority of scholars would agree that by Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is probably somewhere between 83 and 85 years old. That he's been in exile for 65 years or better when this happens. You know, I've given you that definition from the American Psychological Association of, of what, resi- what they would say resilience is. That it's the process and the outcome of successfully adapting to difficult and challenging life experiences. Daniel has been successfully adapting to difficult and challenging life experiences nonstop for 65 years. And what we see with this man is an unwavering life of integrity and conviction. You've heard that phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. That's Daniel. For 65 years, he has held true to his convictions. He's held true to his values. He's held true to Yahweh and to the laws of God. And he's just been faithful year after year after year. So we get to this point in Daniel chapter 6. Darius is the new king of Babylon. And he has some people to help lead the, the, the kingdom, the, the empire. 120 satraps, as it were, these are like upper management that would lead the kingdom. And Daniel makes that list. And of those 120, they need some leadership. So he has three, what he calls administrators. These are like the C-suite. These are the upper echelon. These are the elite. And they're going to oversee the 120 who will oversee the kingdom. And of those three, there's one that's rising to the top, as we already read in Daniel 6, uh, 6 verse 3, and it would be that Daniel would oversee all of this. Now, it's implied, we don't know this for sure, but it's implied that maybe of the 123 leaders here, the 120 satraps and the three administrators, Daniel may have been the only one who was not a Babylonian. Because later, if you read it, you'll see that they address him as one of the exiles from Judah. He's an outsider. He's a foreigner. And because of that, not only is he the outlier, the one that doesn't fit with the rest of them, but the fact that he's being elevated from the 120 to the three and from the three to the one, there's a bit of jealousy. Why is he the one getting to oversee all of us? He will be our boss. And so these guys who are actually political leaders here in Babylon... I know this, this would never happen in our political system. They decide that they want to dig up some dirt on Daniel. They want to bring about some defamation of his character. They want to kind of bring him down and find out what can we use against him so that we could defeat him. I know it's hard to believe that politicians would ever do anything like that. But they attempt it. So in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, it says this. At this, the administrators and the satraps, that's 122 of them, save Daniel, tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. 
Notice it doesn't say they weren't able to actually get a conviction. They weren't able to actually make the charges stick. They couldn't get enough evidence to back up what they knew was true. No, they couldn't even find anything to accuse him of. I mean, he wasn't just Teflon Don. He was completely clean. There was nothing. You've got 122 guys who are highly motivated to get this guy out of office. They are going to leave no stone unturned to find out what do we have against him. And there was nothing. Gene Getz, in his, uh, in his commentary on the book of Daniel, says about Daniel that he is one of the few principal characters of the Old Testament concerning whom there is not one word of criticism. What that means is, when we see all the great heroes of faith throughout the Old Testament, they might have some issues, they might have some events, a, a lapse of judgment, a, a moral a defect, a, a season that they're embarrassed or ashamed of. Not Daniel. Abraham, man, this man of faith, ah, he lies about his wife, calls her his sister, and gives her into the arms of a couple of kings. Not a good thing. And then he has that Hagar issue with Ishmael and what he does with them. He wasn't all squeaky clean. And Lot, let's not even get started with Lot. Whew. David, David had some skeletons in the closet. Moses, great man of God, anger, some control issues. God won't let him go into the promised land because of it. Samson, total wreck. But Daniel, Daniel's like the goat of the Old Testament. I mean, of all the biblical characters, he doesn't have a character flaw. He doesn't have a lapse in judgment. He doesn't have a skeleton in his closet. And if there was one, they would have found it. So look at their conclusion. Verse five, finally these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Do you, do you follow that? The only way they're ever gonna get this guy in a corner is if somehow they can distort and twist his faith, his commitment to doing the right thing. If they can somehow take his virtue, his values, his integrity, his walk with God, and turn it against him, that's the only way they're gonna, because there's nothing else. What an incredible man. And in fact, a little side note, later, there's a phrase that will be used by Darius to him. It's used at least twice in Daniel chapter six. It says this in verse 16. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually. 65 years he's been in exile and he's known as the one who serves God continually. So these satraps and these administrators, they're thinking, how can we twist Daniel's life against him? And they observe something. They observe that his prayer life is very consistent and very important. It's a priority to him. And they were thinking, how can we turn that against him? And they had an idea. So they go to Darius, the king, arguably the most powerful man on the planet at that point, probably had an ego to match his size of his kingdom. And they say to him, oh, king, last, may you live forever. I mean, you're like God to us. You provide for us. You're the most powerful man on the planet. You're like God. And Darius is probably going, I like these guys. Yeah, you're right. I am like God. 
and said, we've got an idea. We think you ought to issue a decree in which it's illegal for anyone to pray to anyone but you for 30 days, just 30 days, 30 days, money back guarantee, 30 days, they will pray to you and not to any other gods or to any other people. Again, stroking his ego, I like how you're thinking. This is good. I am the most powerful. People ought to pray to me. I'm divine. And they said, and just to make sure that people know how serious we are about this, we think that if they break this rule, if they break this decree, they ought to be thrown into the lion's den. Yeah, that's right, because why would they ever cross what I would say? And just to ensure that it is a very clear understanding, we think this ought to be written into the laws of the Medes and the Persians. Now, for most of us, the laws of the Medes and the Persians means absolutely nothing. But for them, when something was written in the laws of the Medes and the Persians, it meant that it was irrevocable, could not be changed. Even the one who created that law, once it was written in the laws of the Medes and the Persians, he had no recourse. He could not rescind that law. And they put this scheme together to make sure it would seal the fate of Daniel. And the king says, yes. And this is where we find the one verse that I want us to focus on for the rest of our time. The one verse that shows us how Daniel could be resilient, not just in this circumstance, not just in this event, but over these 65 years. And I think what we will see in this one verse is some truth of how we can continue to grow as resilient people in the circumstances and the situations of our life. So this is what we read. Daniel chapter six, verse 10. This is, this is the verse. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, that's key there, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. So now Daniel, he's been hearing the rumblings. There's this bill that they're trying to pass. There's these rumors of what they're trying to do with the prayer thing. And, but now it's published. It's now written in the laws of the Medes and Persians. It's a done deal now. He knows that. And he knows what that means that he's got a decision to make. Either he compromises and lives or he holds his convictions and dies. There are no other alternatives. It's been published. It's in the laws of the Medes and the It's irrevocable now. And I'm sure he probably thought, well, it's just 30 days. I mean, what's going 30 days without a quiet time? God will forgive me. It's not that big of a deal. I'll get back on track in 30 days. But he says no. He hears that this is the new law, and he goes to his home and to the upstairs, the second floor, and there's some windows that open out towards Jerusalem. Now, this is my speculation. Daniel has been elevated to high positions in the kingdoms for years, other uh, administrators as well. So while he's in exile and he cannot leave, He's been given great power and trust. And I wonder, did he have this house? These aren't slave quarters. This is a house that he had built. And he had designed specifically on the second floor to be able to look over all the other houses and buildings of Babylon toward the west, toward Jerusalem. And that maybe this has been a regular occurrence for him. Night after night, year after year, decade after decade, 
to go upstairs and to throw the windows open as he looks to the west. And how many hundreds of nights he has stood at these windows open to the west, watching the sunset and thinking about Jerusalem. Reminiscing as a child running through the streets of Jerusalem. As a teenager hiking up the side of the Kidron Valley in the Mount of Olives. As a 17-year-old when he was taken from his home, from his family, from everything he knew. When the temple had been destroyed and the walls had been brought down and the neighborhoods had been burned and they were taken off wondering if he would ever go back to Jerusalem, and if he did, if it would be anything like what he remembered. Ah, Jerusalem is so far away. I mean, geographically, it's 700 miles. Chronologically, it's been 65 years. Culturally, oh, Babylon's fine, but to be where they speak my native tongue, where we have the food that I love, the freshly pressed olive oil, and the hummus and the pita bread of Jerusalem. And, and spiritually, where they worship Yahweh, the one true God, not these pagan kings. And, and every night he looks to the west, toward Jerusalem. But it's not just reminiscing. It's not just holding those memories in his mind. And it's not just hopeful, wishful thinking. There's something else he does when he throws those windows open. He goes to the second floor where the windows open toward Jerusalem, and three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed. Three times a day, he gets down. This is his habit. This is his rhythm. And I believe this is why the satraps and the administrators set this up. They had seen this. They had seen this for years. He didn't do it to be seen. It was just like, there's Daniel's house. And there he is again at those windows upstairs. He's up there every morning, every noon, every evening. He, he does this. I mean, it's like clockwork. It never changes. See, Daniel lived a pray-first life. And it wasn't just when there was a crisis that came up. It wasn't even just in the, in the hardships of suddenly we've got we've to pray, there's nothing else to do. This was his life. He prayed this way in good times and in bad times for year after year after year. And when we see this throughout the book of Daniel, in chapter one, he and the boys, they're fasting. It's the Daniel fast. It's where we get that. In chapter two, when there's a dream to be interpreted, he goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, cry out to God. Let's pray. Let's plead that God would reveal this to us. Daniel chapter 6, he's praying three times a day. Daniel chapter 9, he prays again. Daniel chapter 10, he goes into 21 days of prayer and fasting. That's why we structure ours around that in Daniel chapter 10, our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Why three times a day? Maybe, maybe he remembers as a boy reading Psalm 55, where the psalmist writes, but I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. And maybe as a kid, he thought, that's what I want to do. I want this just to be the pattern of my life, the rhythm every morning, every noon, every night, that I will pray. 
Here's what I love about Daniel. I mean, this is amazing to me. He's just found out that it is illegal, punishable by death, you know, cannot be rescinded, that if he prays to anyone but Darius, he will die. That's the law. And what's his response? I best go pray about that. (laughs) I love that. And what does he pray? I don't know. Maybe he's up in that window and he knows the Psalms. Maybe he prays the Psalms. God, your goodness and mercy has followed me all the days of my life and today might be the last day of my life. But I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Maybe he prays, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I think about the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? God, why do you even care about me? And yet Psalm 139, how precious to me are your thoughts, oh God. How vast the sum of them were I to count them when they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, which might be tomorrow in your presence, when I awake, I'm still with you. Maybe he just reminds God, Lord, I have tried to live Psalm 1. I have not walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of mockers. My delight has been in the law of the Lord. And maybe, maybe he somehow found found out about the prayer that Jeremiah had prayed. Maybe he prays this one out of Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I don't know what he prayed, but this I know and this we can own. The reason he lived a resilient life is because he lived a pray first life. I cannot cannot overemphasize how important that is for us if we want to be resilient people. Now, I could spend the rest of our time talking about that, but I want to go a one step further and talk about one little aspect of his prayer life. It's easy to overlook. It's easy to skip over. It's easy to have missed. You may know this story inside and out and never have seen this. And during a time when you need to be resilient, it's one of the most difficult ways to pray. It feels unnatural. It seems counterintuitive. But Daniel did this. And I think this became his superpower in the midst of seasons where he had to be resilient. Back to Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed. Here it is, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Wait, wait. Giving thanks for what? Why? How could he give thanks? I mean, think about what he's gotten. As a 17-year-old, he was the up-and-comer. He was most likely to succeed, and all that was ripped away from him. He was taken from his home and his country. He was taken off into exile. He's had to serve foreign kings in a foreign land with a foreign name and foreign food and foreign language, all that. What's there to be thankful for? On top of that, I mean, he's tried to serve these kings and what has it brought about? Jealousy from the others and now he's gonna be thrown in. He's been faithful to God his whole life and this is how he gets rewarded. What is there to be thankful for? And can we, for just a minute, can we make Daniel human? 
don't you think it's possible there were days he woke up saying, God, I've got nothing to be thankful for. None of my dreams came true. To be able to get married, have kids, be a leader in Jerusalem. And here I am for decades. Don't you think there were days like that for Daniel? And maybe on those days, he had this act of the will to know the importance. And maybe on those days he said, but God, I will. And maybe he turns to Psalm 136, which says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. God, nothing has gone the way I had planned or hoped or dreamed, but this I can be thankful for. Your love endures forever. No matter what circumstance or situation we ever face, that does not change and that we can be grateful for. This is the resilient power of gratitude that, that it, would, it would bring about this resilience when we learn to have this heart of thanks. Daniel did it. I mean, it says, just as he had done before. His whole 65 years, he had been praying and thanking God every single day. Now, let's, let's put the Bible over here for a second. It's our authority. We'll come back to it. But let's just talk about the resilient power of gratitude. So as I've said in this whole series, resilience is a, is a whole branch of study in psychology. And one of the pioneers on resilience and gratitude uh, years ago was a, a man named uh, Dr. Uh, Hans Selyer. Uh, he was like one of the first ones that, that began to talk about gratitude. And he said this at the end of his life of study. He said, gratitude is the healthiest of all human emotions. It's the healthiest one. Right now, there's a, there's a doctor from uh, UC Davis. His name's Dr. Robert Emons. And this is what he's titled, not self-titled. This is what is said about him, that he is the leading expert, leading scientific expert on gratitude. I read one article where he said his wife always questions that title. But he is the leading scientific expert on gratitude on our planet today. Now, you can Google him. He's got great articles. But he talks about the benefits of gratitude in our life. He talks about the psychological benefits, the emotional benefits of being a grateful person. He talks about the relational, sociological benefits that come from it. He talks about the physical, physiological, the actual health benefits of being a grateful person. Along that line, there was a, a really well-known widespread study done in the 90s, and it was conducted on 180 nuns. And the beauty of this study was that using 180 nuns they were a control group. They all had the same income, the same diet, the same wardrobe, the same marital status. They had all these things in common so they could really see what differentiates this 180 nuns. So in the 90s, they asked them permission and it was a longitudinal study because all of these nuns had gone into the sisterhood in the 30s. In the average age, they were 22. And in order to get into the convent or to become a sister, they had to write a little autobiography and why they were going in to become a nun. And it's a fascinating study. There's so much to it. But one of the things that they observed 
is that these young ladies in their 20s who wrote the autobiography, when they talked about being grateful for their upbringing, for their life, and the gratitude to be able to serve Jesus and his church, this group who expressed gratitude 60 years later and into the 90s, they found that the group who expressed gratitude in their 20s, on average, lived 10 years longer than the nuns who did not. I mean, just psychologically, emotionally, relationally, physically, there's so many benefits. Long before any of the psychology, God instructs us. Some of you were raised in church, and you may remember this one. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost. Any of you with me yet? No. Ray is. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. It's more than just a cheery hymn. It's the power, the resilient power of gratitude. And maybe Daniel remembered that. In Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Every day when he threw those windows open, he was not entering into the gates of Jerusalem. He was not entering into the gates of the temple, but he was entering into the gates of God's presence and he would enter in with thanksgiving. And he was grateful and he was thankful. Years later, the apostle Paul would write these words. So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing. I mean, he's talking about salvation, about remaining in Christ, about maturity, about discipleship. And he says, and this characteristic, overflowing with thankfulness. You see, this part of resilience, it's not just good wisdom, it's God's will. It's God's will. It's not just a suggestion. It's not just here's something to consider. When Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he, he gives these little bullet tweets, these little truth bombs, just in rapid fire succession. When he says this, 1 Thessalonians 5, be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. You know, as I wrap this up, I, I want to read a story for you. Uh, some of you may be familiar, some of you have no doubt heard of. Corey Ten Boom, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place and several others. Corey Ten Boom um, had some sisters. In this picture, Corey is the little girl. On the other end is her older sister, Betsy. Betsy was seven years older than her. And Corey and, and uh, Betsy, uh, their whole family, but in the midst of World War II, Corey and Betsy were imprisoned in a, in a concentration camp in Ravensbrück. It was outside of Berlin in Germany. And she recounts an event that happened on their first day in Ravensbrook and then how it played out. And I just want to read this for you. She writes, 
Upon entering the terrible conditions of the barracks, we lay back struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. Suddenly I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, this place is swarming with fleas. Here, and here's another one. I wailed, Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us, show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly, it took a second to realize Betsy was praying. Corey, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer. Before we ask, as he always does, in the Bible this morning, where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the long, dim aisle to make sure no guard was in sight. Then I drew the Bible from its pouch. It was First Thessalonians, I said. In the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her. Such as... I said, such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus, thank you. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Jesus. There was no inspection when we entered here. And thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for the very crowding here since we're packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey? Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas and for the fleas. This was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are a part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood there between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time, I was sure Betsy was wrong. And later, Betsy and I made our way to the rear of the dormitory room where we held our worship services. Around our own little platform, there was not enough light to read the Bible. But back here, a small light bulb cast a wan yellow circle on the wall. And here, an ever larger group of women gathered. They were services like no other these times in Barracks 28. At first, Betsy and I called these meetings with great timidity. But as night after night went by and no guard ever came near us, we grew bolder. So many women now wanted to join us that we held a second service after evening roll call. Now, we were under rigid supervision. Half a dozen guards or camp police always present. Yet in the large dormitory room, there was almost no supervision at all. We did not understand it. One evening, I got back to the barracks late. Betsy was waiting for me, as always, so that we could wait through the food line together. Her eyes were twinkling. You look extraordinarily pleased with yourself, I told her. You know, we'd never understood why we had so much freedom in the big room, she said. Well, I found out. 
That afternoon, she said, there'd been confusion in her knitting group about sock sizes and they asked the supervisor to come and settle it, but she wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door and neither would the guards. And you know why? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice. Because of the fleas. That's what she said. That place is crawling with fleas. My mind rushed back to our first hour in this place. And I remember Betsy's bowed head remembered her thanks to God for creatures that I could see no use for. In every circumstance, give thanks. The resilient superpower. This isn't just for Corey Tinboom. It's not just for Daniel. This is for us. That we can cultivate a heart of gratitude. Now, for some of you, this comes more naturally than for others. For some of you, this is more of an act of the will. Now, I remember years ago hearing John Orberg preach a sermon on contentment and gratitude. And he gave two words of advice that I'll never forget. One is he said, learn to be grateful for imperfect gifts, small little things in life. Acknowledge them and don't just feel grateful, express gratitude. And the other thing he said was, for those of you who are a little more gratitude challenged, maybe a first baby step for you is when you see something and you're not feeling grateful, to repeat these four words. It could be worse. So when you go out to your car and it's not as nice as the car you're parked next to and the dash lights and the warnings come on and all the things, just say to yourself out loud, it could be worse. And when you get to your home or your apartment and it's not nice as the other homes or it's not even yours and you have to rent it and all of the things that need to be fixed, just say, it could be worse. And when you go to work and you've got to deal with your boss or your employees or your coworkers or the task and all of these things that would bring you down, just say these words, it could be worse. And when you look at your spouse don't say those words or it will be worse. <laughs> but to just develop this heart of being grateful, acknowledging it. And I wonder, I wonder if years later, the Apostle Paul thought back to Daniel and specifically chapter 6, verse 10. And what Daniel said in those verse, in that verse, when he wrote these words to the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. If we're gonna be resilient, it's learning to be grateful, and we can do that. So here's my challenge to you. Every day, every day, and if you want the bonus round, three times a day, morning, noon, and night, Find one new thing to be grateful for. And don't just feel grateful. Express that. Express that to God. Express it to whoever you're grateful for. And if, you're saying, if they say, well, you're only saying thank you because Pastor Bob told you to. They say, hey, at least I was listening, so be grateful. But find something as we begin to cultivate this heart of gratitude so that we'll be resilient.